1: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. It's been a busy weekend. I hope you had a great weekend yourself. And I'm looking forward to it. We got a bunch of stuff. Hey, last thing of the show today... And I'll just tell you this because I'm most excited about it. I shouldn't be only tooting my own horn because I got these great guests. Uh, pastor Paula White will be on. a famous, famous pastor now, advisor to uh, President Trump. She'll be on with us. And then uh, our friend Dr. Ted Malik will be on. But last segment of the show, if you can't stay for the whole show, I hope you will though. I'm going to tell you some Rush Limbaugh stories. Because he's fighting cancer, and I hate it, and I, and I want you all to pray for him, and I want you to root for him. But, you know, I, I, Ed Martin's Pro-America Report, I wouldn't be doing this without Rush Limbaugh. You know, it's totally, totally Rush Limbaugh. So, in fact, if you can't listen to the whole show tonight, go to ProAmericaReport.com. You could do two things. One, you can sign up for my daily email. And I just email you every morning at 5 a.m. Pacific time. And number two, find the segment from today's show where I talk about Rush Limbaugh. You're going to love to hear some of the stories. And also, I want you just to appreciate the guy. He's a really, really important guy in the history of America Really important and a wonderful guy, and he's battling cancer, and I just want to make sure we're talking about him a little bit more than we have been. So uh, Rush Limbaugh is coming up, and we'll have that. All right. Also, I mentioned Paula White. Pastor Paula White will be with us in just a few minutes. You're going to want to hear that segment and a lot more. But what is the? what do you need to know today? What do you need to know today? Well, it's been a long weekend, right? We talked late last week about the jobs numbers are up. We talked about how lots of people have been going out into the into the sun and into the outside and not having to uh, have massive uh, covid uh, coronavirus Wuhan virus outbreaks. We we seem to be in a, in a spot where that's all good news. Right. That's all good news last week. Unbelievable jobs numbers, right direction. Still a lot of people out of work. And the second thing is the, uh, is the uh, COVID coronavirus, Wuhan virus seems to be sort of at least manageable right now. You know, numbers of death dropped in some key places, including in, uh, in uh, New York and all. So it's pretty good. But what you need to know is we've had these protests all weekend. And I got to tell you, I want to acknowledge, uh, first of all, that nobody can, uh, really you know, nobody can go in somebody else's shoes, right? This is one of the great mysteries. And you know, I really learned it when I became a parent because when I became a dad and you suddenly have these kids that are your children and they're your responsibility. And no matter what you think about that as a, as a human being, you can't run from that. I mean, you can try and a lot of people do. And there's lots of fathers that walk away from their kids, which is a shame, but you still something about your nature changes when you have a child, but it also makes clear how you can't be somebody else. You can't know somebody else's feelings. You can't protect somebody else completely this is a little bit of a convoluted way to say i'm not an african american i'm not a woman i'm not uh handicapped you know, in any major way i have no sense of smell but nobody counts that as a handicap so you know when some of the things that are real you know really impediments to uh growing up and and living when somebody you know treats mistreats you some of the major things i'm a pretty privileged guy i've had a pretty wonderful life i've gotten you know my parents were good to me i've had a you know i've been able successful in lots of ways So we have to acknowledge that. But you sort of learn to acknowledge that everybody's going through through something differently. And when you watch the good people in these protests that want a better future, you feel for them, right? You should. But then you watch the leaders, the Democrat Party and, and the, black, uh, the, oh, the Black Lives Matters. Their, their leaders have been terrible, and especially the Antifa that spoil any real concern about, you know, how do you make a life for your future and yourself and others by being, you know, out of control. And the newest one of these is the Democrats who have united around, if you can believe it, a theory for their, um, for their governing of defunding the police. And and what you need to know is defunding the police is not actually what they mean, what they mean, because they, they, I mean, they kind of do. But what they really mean that, that that is meant to be a euphemism is they want to get rid of the police. If you defund the police, you want to get rid of the police. And so what I was telling somebody earlier about this, I was saying, you know, one of the things that's happened in this country to certain of our institutions is the left. When they can't destroy it, they um they try to uh, they try to change it. So, for example, the military has grown from the greatest fighting force in the world that liberated the world, you know, celebrated the anniversary of D-Day two days ago. It's gone from this focused military machine that when it had to, could kick the enemy's tail. And when it didn't have to, the enemy knew it could. And as, as Phyllis Schlaffel, my late Phyllis Schlaffel used to say, the principle was military superiority. If you had military superiority, military superiority, not social services superiority, not Red Cross superiority. I'm talking about the military doing the Red Cross duties, you know. There's nothing wrong with the Red Cross. That's good. But when the, when the military becomes your Red Cross, that's not good. So what happened in this country is lots of our institutions, the left couldn't destroy them, so they've subverted them. They've changed them. Military becomes a social services agency doing all kinds of wonderful things, but it's not the military. You know, we should be helping people when there's a bad flood. That just shouldn't be the military's purpose. You know, and the same thing with um, higher education, the same thing with education, lots of different things. You can pick different topics, different institutions that have been subverted by the left Because they can't eliminate them. They just change them and make them less helpful in the way they should be. And one of those is law enforcement. In our in our poverty stricken parts of the country and not poverty stricken in suburban areas, too, and middle class, our our police have been asked to become something more than keep us safe from crime. They play a, a larger role there. You know, there we have places where there's so, so much poverty and so much crime that they have to be kind of big brother. You, I couldn't have gotten away one time when I was a boy. I took from my grandparents, and the word I'd use is stole, but I took it from my grandparents, a little metal a Santa that I liked. And every time I saw it at Christmas, I thought it was heavy. It's like lead. And I took it one time. I took it home with me. And later, my grandmother said to my mother and father when we had visited them and we went home, she said, the Santa disappeared. And they came to me and said, where'd the Santa go? And I said, I took it. And I remember it vividly. My parents gave me lectures on stealing property, you know, and I was mortified. I was probably eight or ten years old. In our cities, we've asked our law enforcement to become fathers, mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, and, and operate in a way beyond what they can survive at, can succeed at. They become social services, and a lot of them are heroic, really heroic. But what we should have and what the Democrats are missing is we don't need to defund anybody. We need to refocus our law enforcement to be... Focused on law enforcement and not everything else. We have to change that. But anyway, back to the Democrats. The Democrats don't want to do that. They don't aren't serious about it. And it's a d- disaster politically, by the way. It is the biggest disaster politically for the Democrats to stand around and say they want to defund the cops. There's no doubt we should make sure that our cops are, are, well, first of all, we should make sure our cops are supported and that our cops get everything they need to do their job and then held accountable. If they mess up, they ought to be held accountable. I have no problem with that. And I all my friends, I got a bunch of buddies from co- uh, high school, especially that became cops. I, you know, I grew up in uh, in Jersey, and and I had a bunch of I went to high school in Jersey City, and in Jersey City, a bunch of the guys. Are, you know, Eddie's a cop, uh, Rob's a cop. You know, uh, one of the guys is a police chief over in one of the smaller towns in Hudson County. I mean, you know, it, it, there's lots of cops, and they would want to be held accountable to do their job right. But the Democrats don't want to really do that. They want to they want to change the institutions that hold us together and gut them. But here's the other part of this, what the Democrats haven't said, which is just stunning to me, the most serious critique, the most serious, what you need to know is they the defund, defund, uh, defund the police is a loser politically. It destroys society. It's a bad idea. We, we should get them focused and hold them accountable. But then we should actually address the, the major problems that are existing. And one of them in every community, but especially in poor, poor communities, is education. Education is not getting our children a chance to get out from under. They're not able to do it. And the one thing that would change their lives is if they had a system where instead of getting sentenced to a school based on where they live, they were given a ticket out, a voucher out, if you want to call it. The left hates the vouchers. Even the right has gotten scared of vouchers. They think it's too. But I'm saying give a parent, give a mom especially mom or grandma, dad, if he's there, in the, in the poverty-stricken areas, whether it's poor, rural, poor, urban, whatever it is, give them a ticket out and get them out of these school system that sentence them to too little education and too little success. That's what you need to know. That's where the difference can be made. If you want to protest, protest with an eye. I'm for it, for what can be done. And defunding the police is not a real solution. It doesn't make any sense. And it's just done by politicians who think that they're pandering to the crowd so they can stay in power. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back. We're going to talk with Paula White, Pastor Paula White, who is an amazing uh, uh, success story herself and is also a uh, great uh, advisor to the president. She has a new book out. We'll talk about that. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report, and um, I'm really excited to uh, have our next guest on. And uh, Pastor Paula White Cain, you probably know her. Lots of reasons. She's an advisor to President Trump. Her book is called "Something Greater: Finding Triumph Over Trials." And I have to say, Pastor, that I this is how I knew you. I knew your. I knew of your life story a little bit more than I think many people. Many people saw you as a successful pastor, and suddenly you're advising this great president, and everyone's like, "Wow!" And I had followed the sort of uh, ebbs and flows of your, at least knowing your story, you know, that you had, had in your life had come to come to know the Lord, and, and I think late in your teens, you know, before you, but then had successes right. and, and failures and all, and so, first of all, welcome to the program. I hope you're doing well.
2: It's so wonderful to be with you, and um, I, am, I am doing good because God is on the throne, and during this, this time in our country, certainly seeking the Lord and, and uh, doing a lot of prayer.
1: Well, and and especially this time, I tell people when that we had that uh, the great pause, I call it the great pause, where everybody had to stay home more often. I said, first of all, you got to re- reintroduce yourself to your, a lot of your family, which is good, and then the second thing is you had a lot of time, and so if you can get into a habit. In my family, we added some prayer time; it made a difference. And so I think you're right. So the new book is called "Something Greater: Finding Triumph Over Trials." Uh, it's it's uh, it's actually out late last year, and and uh, but it's Paula White Cain, and you can get it anywhere books are sold. But you know, I was reading uh, parts of it, and. And one of the things I loved is that uh, you called it a love letter to God from a messed up Mississippi girl. Give us a sort of trajectory of your life and how how your life has gone.
2: Well, it's so good to be with you and with everyone that is listening. And um, like you said, so many people see me maybe in a position or they're reading a chapter. What is the current chapter of my life? But it didn't start out that way. I came from a pretty well-to-do family, uh, but my father committed suicide when I was five years old. Uh, experienced a lot of trauma and abuse Um, when I was young. My mother became an alcoholic, very successful. She had two masters or doctorate and um, unfortunately went through sexual and physical abuse and and, uh, suffered a lot of issues from abandonment issues. You know, two and two don't add up to four to me. If you love me so much why did you leave me? And of course those faulty lies and beliefs that I say of the enemy meaning Satan begin to create behavior and consequences in our life. But at eighteen years old, um, I had a really divine encounter a supernatural. I wasn't I didn't grow up in church, had no idea of heard the name Jesus, but it was almost in to me. But like the two say, there was no concept or real understanding of God. And at eighteen I was chasing a guy, happened to go over to his grandmother's house and his uncle was there. And he looked me in my eyes and said, I have the answers to your questions and the solution to your pain and problems. Of course, I looked at him extremely defensive, like, What are you talking about? <laughs> and he, right. you know, and honestly, he began to say things to me that I didn't necessarily like. Everything he was saying to me, he opens up this book, or it's the Bible, and he begins to talk to me and tell me that I'm a sinner. And I'm like, I'm a what? And you know, you've done this, and you know, you're separate. And he begins to explain the plan of salvation, and that God's got this great plan for my life. And he begins to tell me about his love for me and his words though some of them were harsh and I was guarded and I you know but but I was melting with love and it sounds so corny but I walked outside and it was like for the first time in my life the grass was green and the sky was blue and I knew the power of real love And he told me go find a church, and I was eighteen years old. And went to a few places. People were mostly like sixty or so. Now that's very young now, but that was extremely old. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I looked for. um, I, I said, I need that book. I need that book. And I grabbed a Bible and I held it up and I said, God, please show me who you are, show me who I am, and show me what life is about. And I prayed this simple prayer, and I said, Can I spend the rest of my life helping people? Little did I know that heartfelt, sincere prayer would lead me to places in life that it has. I was living in a trailer on Bill Moxley Road in Mount Airy, Maryland, and had gone through, as I said, a plethora of things from my father's death to my mother's alcoholism to the abuse to extreme poverty, going to bed hungry at night as a child, the, the, the trauma of, of what you go through. And all of that pain would end up having great purpose in my life. And so I take people through the book and through, um, and we talk about really, I think it's a book that's so necessary for where we are as a people right now, because it's overcoming uh, tragedies. And all of us have gone through tragedy. All of us have gone through trauma these last four months. They say that 50% of people, almost 48% of people have extreme anxiety and mental health and emotional distress and duress over the, the, the lockdown and over um, what their experience and view of will a family member die, will they die and the difference between reality and perception is drastic but it, it's created so much anxiety even among strong believers in the economic and in the health crisis the spiritual crisis, not being able as she said to be with our church family which is what we know, what we cling to and, and so much has changed and all change feels so like loss and whenever there's loss in life you know, we don't like it. We like to believe a little bit more of the illusion that we're in control of things. But I can tell <laughs> everyone listening that there is a God who is sovereign, and He's very certain in uncertain times. And that's where our help comes from, and that's where we cling to, and that's where we find our hope, and He is our refuge. And God will not fail us. And what I mean by that, it might not be our plans, for the plans of man will fail, but the plans of God will always prevail. And I go through, and after I get saved, you know, I'll, I'll speed things up. 2002, I mean, we start a ministry and, and basically um, just compelled to help people. I was just with Secretary Perdue and I was talking about we, we we're working a lot on farmers to family and helping people and feeding the most distressed community and the most vulnerable. And really, through President Trump, helping get to uh, communities that are hurting the absolute most. And I told my story, like, when when did this start for you? And I said, I think when I was five years old and went to bed hungry and saw my mom crying and felt that knot in my stomach mm. and shared a bowl of noodles with my brother that had ketchup on it that she'd call spaghetti, if I even got that. And, I, and the first mm. time I really started ministry was someone, I was living in my trailer, and someone came and gave me a turkey, and they said, i mm-hmm. um, here, and I just thought I was so blessed. I was like, God, oh, look at God. You know I mean? I hear I had a turkey. <laughs> I was a very young mother right. at 19 years old, and I got on the BART. That's, you know, subway up in, outside of D.C. Yep. I lived in Mount Airy, Maryland. Got on the BART, and there was an advocate that did a lot of work with the homeless, and I took half that turkey and went down and began to feed, and that's how ministry started for me. It was getting outside hmm. of myself and taking something that was in my hand and helping another person well little did i know that little act of compassion and love that i just felt compelled that what i had which was a turkey to do something with it would turn into a worldwide ministry and i always felt like you can you can the call is the need and when i saw a man standing in the rain you hand him an umbrella and then through that i could share the love of jesus christ and it wasn't just shoving a bible down someone's throat and i say the greatest You know, my life's mission is to bring forth spiritual truths that transform lives, but it's always to then take care of the poor need and to just show the love of God through practical acts of what we would call faith, but just acts of love. Right. And so there's where ministry was birthed, and then I'd find myself in the inner city after the L.A. riots, Um, right after, you know, I was in Nickerson Gardens and Wyberley and Jordan Downs, and over 50,000 people would get born again negotiating between the Bloods and the Crips, and I'm writing about all this, or I, you know, here I am in the murder capital of the world in 1984 in D.C., and I'm feeding the homeless and making a difference there. And I didn't know that God was just building all these blocks. Um, for Mm -hmm. a purpose that He would allow me to see so many lives that would be transformed um, in in a way that is mind-blowing to me. (laughs) And so I want to, you know, and I'll I'll, I'll fast forward this here. So there's all this ministry that's taking place, and then I'm thinking, man, I made it, I made it. And I didn't think I made it because of ministry. I thought I made it because, like, finally I'd come out of such a dysfunctional family and so much, you know, pain that I could have... Prognosis said I would, you know, be an addict, or I'd, I'd be an abuser, or I'd be abused, or I'd be in this, or all these prognoses, you know, statistics against me. But I realize mm-hmm. we're who God says we are, not who man says we are. In 2002, I'm writing in my journal. I say, Can life get any better? I'm, I'm living the, the greatest. <laughs> Well, in 2003, literally, um, my whole world falls apart, and I I would chronicle it. It would be 19 life crises, 39 different events, and everything that could be shaken would be shaken. And at the time, I'm going, but why God? Why? And it's everything from, you know, I believe so much in the divine sacredness of an institution of marriage, just as I do in the church, and my ex who has shared his story many times would get addicted to Valium that would lead to um, Oxy that would lead to heroin that one addiction leads to another from drugs Hmm. to women to things and that door would be open but long before that door was open bitterness would set in his heart because we'd come so hard against pornography in the city and we had seen such change in our city against pornography the next thing we know And I lied about it all. We're under investigation. I'm like, what did we do? We didn't do anything. And there's, you know, criminal IRS investigation, there's FBI. I mean, these things are very scary and very real. And, um, you know, of course, we were cleared in six months for a three year Hmm. uh, time period investigation. But, those those take real tolls on you. They're not easy things to walk through. And then it's your 52 weeks of headlines. And you know, we didn't know, we weren't living in the era of hashtag fake media, but we were facing fake media. And we were, I was like, how can they write lives like this? How can they do this? You know, and and right. we didn't know a statue of limitations two years or this or that. We'd never been through. Nobody prepared us. We didn't know what to do, and half the people think you have leprosy, and you know, also what you right. do, and then our daughter gets cancer, and and we lost our daughter to cancer, and that devastated wow. our family, and and hmm. so I you know I, I go in a deep depression, and and now there are things I would never want to go through again, never. I never want to walk through right. some of the things I've walked through. or will not want anyone to have to, but I look back and I can authentically say the greatest blessing in my life is God loved me enough to reduce me to Christ. Now, I'll tell you that no one's going to shout, nobody's going to go, yay, right into <laughs> you right now and say, tell me how to be reduced to Christ. But I found a place in Him that I live and I move and I have my being, and I could never be in the place that God has me. If I would not have been processed through some of the things, there were so many things for everyone who's hurting and everyone who's confused and everyone says, God, where are you right now? And everyone that says, but why me? And everyone saying, but life isn't fair. I can authentically say, I understand. I know. Right. I've been yeah. I've been on a wick. I've come out of a trailer. I've been in extreme poverty. I've been where my life is absolutely nothing but ashes. But I can also tell you that God is a faithful God, that God is the one who has the final say, that I can stand boldly with Philippians 1, 6 and say, you can be confident in this one thing. The same God that started the good work is the same God that will finish it further and execute it. And that's what something greater is, that the end of your story, It's not what man's prediction is. It's what God's purpose is. And if you hold on to God and hold on to purpose, the intention of God, He has the final say. He will somehow, yeah. some way, supernaturally shift things in your life and something greater is not a bigger house or a bigger car yeah. or title. Something greater is there is. Your portion is peace. It is joy. It yeah. is purpose. It is glory to his name. And I want to give hope to everyone who feels hopeless, who feels like they're backed in a corner. Sometimes being backed in a corner, being broken where there's nothing left but ashes. God brings the greatest beauty out of that. And that's what Mm -hmm. something greater is about, that out of the pain, out of the tragedy really does come God's glory.
1: Well and that's it, the the uh the subtitles Finding Triumph Over Trials. I'm I'm unfortunately I'm out of time and uh Pastor Paula White Cain, thank you. The book is something greater Finding Triumph Over Trials. Thank you for your well that that uh I think it was kind of a uh a kind of uh teaching uh, uh moment there and also for all your help for the present. Uh we appreciate it and we'll visit again soon. Keep us on your list to thank come on and you. talk more yeah. about these important things. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day.
2: Would look. God bless you. Bye-bye.
1: Okay. And we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Be back in a minute. This is the
0: Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego.
1: Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Our old friend, Dr. Ted Malik, is with us, and he's got a really good piece that I'm glad we can talk about. He sent it to me, and we, I'm talking about it. And uh, The Shape of Things to Come is the title of it, uh, and it's about the economy. Welcome back, Ted. How are you?
0: I'm great. And. So is our U.S. economy. We've got a V-shaped recovery, which uh, I know comes as news to lots of people, and particularly (laughs) to all those Trump haters and New York Times columnists and uh, left-wing economists. Uh, The downturn is over, and um, it looks like we're going to have a very, very, very quick and positive economic recovery.
1: So let me ask you about that. We're talking with Ted Malik. Ted, when when people say, because I pretend I don't know anything, which is always a good bet, it, what is the V shaped economy? I mean, V shaped recovery. What does that mean? I mean, what what could it have been? What what are the t- when you when you economic, e- economists talk about what the possibilities are? You know, walk us through what could have been and what you know what is happening.
0: Well, most business cycle recessions, and they do occur, tend to go down slowly. Uh, And some of them, in fact, turn into longer, even deep recessions. And it takes, frankly, uh, years to get out of them. So at best, to use another letter, people call them U-shaped recoveries, where the bottom of the U is actually quite long. And um, it can go on, as I say, for, if not years, many years. In this case, everyone said, well, we have this uh, coma-imposed economy as a result of the COVID oaks, and uh, it will right. be very hard to get ourselves out of this. Uh, the uh, unemployment is unbelievable. The situation is impossible. And in fact, uh, what we're going to have is a full-blown depression. And the wish was, of course, that this would cost Trump the election. Lots of mm-hmm. suffering, <laughs> havoc, downturn like we've never seen before. And then after November, after the election, after we had the new anointed one coming in from the old regime, uh, things could turn around at best. Uh, And what we found is, and of course the markets predicted this if you just listen to them, uh, is that in these most recent job numbers released at the end of last week is that we had the beginning of a, a very sharp V-shaped recovery, where we were supposed to see the unemployment number go down even, you know, it was supposed to be horrible, and, you know, it was supposed to be 20% unemployment. And, in fact, what we found, that it improved by at least 2.5 million, maybe 3.5 million jobs. And this is an indication, as the market is itself, again, listen to the market, that we are in a V, victory shape, shooting straight up, (laughs) Economy. We can do a lot more to help it, but it really, I think, forebodes very good news for Trump and for us in the November election.
1: Well, and so Ted, we're, we're talking with Ted Malick, and again, the the the, uh, the t- title of his piece is "The Shape of Things to Come." and And my question about this is, why? And I know you go into it in your piece, so you can say you can talk, but you described it now. But why? You know, I, I simplified a lot of what I heard by saying, well. There are some real disruptions that are happening. In other words, it is clear that certain businesses, you know, a bunch of restaurants and hotels are either on the brink or have taken bankruptcy. Right? But and and obviously, there's been some changes in airlines, consolidation, shifting. But in general, it was a pause. So when you restart, you need going to need some runway to get going. But the fundamentals are right. Is that what's happening? Is it you know what's going to happen when we get you know a three months back in action and it turns out that we, we have lost some biz. I mean, what do what, what you, you attribute it to being a V? Why a V and not a U?
0: Well, I think because it was self-imposed, because it's not a real recession, because the, the economy just three months ago was going gangbusters, all-time high, unemployment for every group, blacks, Hispanics, women, Asian, everyone at an all-time low. We're going back to that. This is a trump economy. And all we had to do is put it back on its head. And uh, I think we're seeing now the market gives us the, the same um, kind of indication. It points in, in, in that direction. And it's a record that, that can be improved upon. And I'm not saying there are no uh, harms done. There's no suffering that some people weren't dislocated, that there aren't costs. There are. And some of the legislation has helped. To overcome, I think, some of those problems. But the best thing that can happen, the very best thing, and of course the Democrats and Biden don't want this to happen, is that the economy self corrects. Uh, the mm. Trump haters, of course, don't want this, but the numbers, I think, give us the proof. The numbers suggest that that, in fact, is what is happening. Uh, and then they go on in the piece to say, well, just to ensure this, we should do a couple more things. I mean, it's not like, um, you know, we just snap our fingers and this happens. Uncle Sam could give all individuals who, say, under, uh, earn under $100,000, uh, you know, another check for $1,200, say, around September 1st, just to make sure it's going. President Trump could still sign that second check if he wanted to. Um, give the recovery some legs. This is going to allow the American consumer, who, again, makes up 72, 75 percent of the American economy, to have the confidence to go out there and do things, to buy things, to buy cars, to buy houses, to go to the restaurant, to travel again. I mean, we see that the COVID uh, issue is over and there may indeed even be a vaccine by the end of the year. So I think we're putting that basically in the rearview mirror.
1: Uh, Ted, is the, is the, uh, what about the world economy? You know, and, and so you're, you're, we're talking Ted Malik, Dr. Ted Malik, who is, uh, of course, a, a, uh, great American, but lives in London. So you see up close Boris Johnson and his, uh, his folks there. And also you have had your, uh, your, you know, you've been very helpful for me watching China. What about the world economy? Is the world economy, you know, Italy's economy was in the tank before sure. all this, uh, Wuhan virus. So, so they still are. But where, where do you se- see the world economy? Are we gonna lead it or be dragged by it or what's your sense
0: well america is still the number one economy in the world so what america does is most consequential china has basically fallen way down they're not just number two they're way back uh europe has been slack because of its socialist orientation and it's slower coming out of this recession so yes america will lead the global recovery america will do better than all of the others Hooray! Hooray! If the rest of the world followed our democratic, capitalist, and free market orientation, they too would do better. But some of them are reticent to do so for ideological reasons.
1: How's um, How's Boris Johnson's uh, uh, leadership going? What's What's happening there?
0: Well, he has an 80-seat majority. Uh, the economy, I think, is, is, is slowly beginning to come back. They didn't open up as quickly as the U.S. We can't go to the pub yet, so, you know, how can you live in Britain and not have <laughs> a pub open? Uh, but right. um, the big question here is, of course, at the end of the year. Will the U.K., in its leaving the European Union, as a result of Brexit, have a free trade agreement with the European Union, or will they return to WTO rules and become a kind of offshore island, uh, uh, you know, with different regulations? That That's the ongoing debate in question here. My feeling is that at least we know that they've left the EU if they have a, uh, you know, a kind of low-level... Uh, trade agreement with Europe, it's better than not having anything. But the more interesting question might be from an American perspective, which I've been, of course, positing all these years, is let's get this U.S.-U.K. special relationship and special trade agreement done even before the end of the year.
1: And where is the, what is the status on that? Can, that? can that move?
0: It's moving. The talks are taking place. Yeah. Uh, the the UK government has jokingly said we get along a lot better with our European, I mean with our American cousins than with our European enemies. So um, yeah, let's do it. Hmm. As, as I tell that people, is, uh... either, you have to get used to eating chlorinated chicken, but you know I've been doing it my whole life.
1: <laughs> that's a good. That might be the quote of this whole talk. All right. Hey, uh, that piece you gave me. When is that running, Ted? This piece that's coming up. The the, uh, up the
0: shape of things this to afternoon, come. Afternoon, a gateway pundit, and uh, I think the White House is going to like it uh, because this is the shape of things to come.
1: Yeah. All right, Ted Malik, Thank you. As always, uh, I'll put it up on social media as soon as we see it. Appreciate it, Ted. Thank you. Great. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the ProMark Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. Now continuing that legacy, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. A crisis doesn't have immunity from the symptoms of politics. We're just a few months from the next presidential election. For Democrats, whatever President Trump endorses is bad, and a prolonged crisis is nothing more than an opportunity for them to boost their Democratic Party in the upcoming elections. Democratic governors from New York to Nevada are proof of this sad truth. They interfered with ordinary folks trying to get treatment for COVID-19. Even in red state, Georgia, nursing home patients vulnerable to the coronavirus couldn't get preventative medicines, while in other countries like South Korea and India, they were dishing it out left and right. Trump tried to get treatment to people as early as possible, so Democrats reflexively did the opposite. Grandstanding Democrat New York Governor Andrew Cuomo opted to take on the hospitalized and ration approach of socialized medicine rather than Trump's approach of getting medicine out as quickly as possible. Cuomo hoarded so much medication that patients couldn't easily obtain it in New York. Cuomo and other Democrat governors stopped treatment for coronavirus patients until they got into the hospital, and then they rationed it. This ties in perfectly with the model for socialized medicine, which is to withhold care and then earn political support by appearing to be generous with the public, who should have had access to it all along. If you still aren't convinced that Democrats can't keep politics out of the business of saving lives— Listen to this. A hospital executive in New York was rightly fired for suggesting that Trump supporters should infect each other with the coronavirus. Bias against conservatives reaches from Hollywood to hospitals. Liberals even used COVID-19 as an excuse to take political potshots at those they hate most. Abortion is somehow considered essential while non-essential services like churches and gun stores were put on indefinite lockdown, with pastors even being arrested. When our grandchildren read about COVID-19 in the history books, I wish they could see a nation united against a common enemy. I want them to see people coming together for the betterment of our communities. That's the legacy our grandchildren deserve to read about. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back, Ed Martin. Here on a Pro America Report. Great to be with you. And I told you I do a little segment in appreciation of Rush Limbaugh. Let me do that right now. Rush Limbaugh. You know, for all my years in in uh, Missouri, twenty five years. There's nothing quite like the Limbaugh family, and it's not only because of Rush. It clearly is because of Rush now. But Rush's family is his father, his uh, cousins, his uncle. They're just phenomenal. They were phenomenal people, phenomenal family, and and also very very talented. Lawyers. It's really funny because Rush never became a lawyer, and I don't, think, I don't think he finished college, but his brother David Limbaugh is a phenomenal lawyer. Uh, there's just all these Limbaugh's. It's a wonderful family from Cape Girardeau. And I, um, I, of course, I always tell you, I grew up in New Jersey, but I went to St. Louis to go to law school and I stayed for 25 years, a little bit under 25 years living there and getting immersed in it. And I, because I was a sort of uh, like a, a a new, you know, I was newly assimilated into Missouri. I was like a, a like a, a, you know, a new immigrant. I became kind of uh, immersed in it and I became like, you know, fascinated by it. And so the Limbaugh family was one, again, not only because of Rush, but because of just the the great family and Rush is fighting this terrible cancer. so. I'm thinking about him a ton. I hope you are and praying for him a lot. Uh, but I wanted us to tell a couple of stories. One is a famous story that uh, Steve Limbaugh, who's now a judge on the federal cor- the federal courts uh, in Cape Girardeau, his father Steve Limbaugh Sr. was also a judge and is now a senior uh, was was a senior judge. I guess he's no longer on the bench. Uh, but Steve Limbaugh um, uh, hosted us for dinner. When I, as a young lawyer, helped bring in Justice Antonin Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, to give a couple of talks, and he gave one talk in down to two talks in downtown St. Louis, and then we went off to Cape Girardeau, and we went uh, to give a speech at uh, Southeast Missouri State. And and Justice Scalia gave this huge talk, and I was his uh, escort. I introduced him, and I and a few of us, we left the stage. And because he was the speaker and he has security, Justice Scalia, we ended up in an SUV, and we went to Steve Limbaugh's house in Cape Girardeau. And we had this uh, phenomenal evening. By the way, Steve Limbaugh was not on the federal bench by then. I think he might have been on the uh, Missouri Supreme Court, though. But anyway, we go to his house, and we arrive, and we're early. Everybody else was at the speech with thousands of people, and they were not as quick to exit as we did. So we're standing in front of the house and we knock on the door and the door turns back and it's, it's Rush Limbaugh. And for the next about 15 or 20 minutes before people arrived, it was me, one other person, Justice Scalia and Rush Limbaugh on the back deck of Steve Limbaugh's house. And the two of them talked. I didn't say much of a word, if you can believe it, but they talked. And it was an extraordinary time. And and it was incredible, and it was incredible to see. And as the late Phyllis Schlafly told me more than once, Rush Limbaugh was one of the great. Is one of the greatest. But his what he did at the beginning, he was an innovator. He was an innovator who decided he was going to communicate so incredibly. And his innovation, all these years, he is the voice for grassroots conservatism. And I remember listening to him with Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly. She just would laugh out loud. She'd say only Rush could see it. He would see so many things. So get well, Rush. We're glad you're uh, fighting. We appreciate you, Rush Limbaugh and the Limbaugh family. All right, got to run, though. Uh, as always, it's great to be with you. It's Ed Martin. Thank you, Noah, our technical director, and uh, Joanna for book things. It's the Pro-America Report. We'll be back tomorrow night. Thanks for listening.